this question about that people tend to ask younger people, like, what's your passion? What's your passion? And I really dislike that question because I think when you face that question, there's sort of this obligation to give a really profound answer. This is the Happen to Your Career podcast with Scott Anthony Barlow. We help you stop doing work that doesn't fit you, figure out what does, and make it happen. We help you define the work that's unapologetically you, and then go get it. If you're ready to make a change, keep listening. Here's Scott. Here's Scott. Here's Scott. What if you could get more done by simply knowing when to do it? Or what if I told you that finding a career you're passionate about isn't really all that is cracked up to be? Or what if I showed you that science says that something much bigger than passion leads to career happiness? You might be scratching your head a bit, but today we have some mind-bending ideas on exactly these subjects. Passion is a sort of emotion, a sort of state that is very, very hot and, and not enduring, not something that's sustainable. That's Dan Pink. He's a New York Times bestselling author of several books, including Drive and Win. Both are about human behavior, both are about business, but come from different perspectives. By the way, he's had a massive impact on my life. I remember my days as an HR director ordering cases of his books because I knew they'd be transformational for anyone I could get to read them. Dan has this really powerful way of helping us figure out our best work and (laughs) when the best time to do it is. In fact, he wrote an entire book on the impacts of timing on success. That's not the only reason that we have him here on the show and why I wanted to talk to him. He's also got a really interesting, varied career, including being a speechwriter for Al Gore and many other policy and politics types positions. And I would actually love to go back before the books, predating the books. In fact, I'd love to go all the way back to law school because you're not a lawyer at this point, as it turns out. Uh, so take us back there a bit. And I'm super curious, why on earth did you even decide to go to law school in the first place? Okay, fair question. I don't want to torture your listeners too much. But in order to answer that question, I think you have to go back into my upbringing. I grew up in the American Midwest, middle class kid, son of parents who were very deeply concerned about economic security and Throughout my childhood, this message was understandably beat into me about you got to do something you can fall back on. You got to make sure that you take care of your economic security. And what that meant in the time that I was growing up was things like becoming a doctor, becoming an engineer, becoming an accountant, becoming a, a lawyer, like having that kind of skilled profession. And and because of the nature of, I don't know, my parents said basically, just I just assumed like my whole... I mean, it's weird. My whole childhood that that's what I would do. It's it's really weird. I recognize that in retrospect, and so I did in a kind of a mindless way. And uh, I got there, and and I really didn't like it. And I left for a little while. I ended up going back, partly through risk aversion more than anything else. And it's not only am I not a lawyer now; I've never been a lawyer. I graduated from law school and never practiced law. Never clerked for a judge. Never did anything like that. Instead started working in politics because at the time, that's what I was interested in. So what prompted you to go through the rest of law school and then not not become a lawyer? There was probably a bit that happened in between there, I suppose. 
Well, yes and no. I mean, there are two parts of that question. Yeah. I mean, part of it was, I mean, so what prompted you to go through and what prompted you not to be, become a lawyer? To me, at some level, those are two different questions. One of them is what, what prompted me to go through is probably just a sense of just bad reasoning saying, oh my God, I've already sunk this much time into it. I might as well finish. Or probably at another level, wow, I really look like an idiot if I started and didn't finish. That's it. And then in terms of not practicing, that was actually an easier decision because here's the problem, Scott, that I made. And and if there's a lesson that other people can learn on this, it's that I think a lot of times we make assumptions about how the world works or how careers go or what professions are like. And a lot of times your assumptions are wrong. I mean, truly, I, I mean, I feel like an idiot in retrospect. I, I had no idea what lawyers actually did. And like, I never spent any time in a law office. I never actually spent a day with a lawyer. I never talked to a lawyer about what she did for a living. I actually never even went to a law school class to check it out before going to law school. And that's a huge mistake. I just assumed what it was going to be like. And once I realized that what lawyers actually did, my view of it was, okay, great. This is a you know skilled profession, but I don't want it. This is boring. I don't want to do this for the rest of my life. And so that was actually an easy decision not to practice, not to practice law. Because in the same way that I wouldn't want to spend the next 30 years of my life, you know, cleaning gutters. That's not interesting. That's how I felt about the practice of law. So what happened post-law school then? It was an easy decision, but then something happened post-law school. I graduated unemployed, and I was one of the very, very, very few people who graduated from law school unemployed. And again, the way that sort of the anthropology of law schools is it's a haven for people who are deeply risk-averse. And as a consequence, a lot of people have jobs, their post-graduation plans lined up like literally over a year in advance. Everybody had a job either clicking for a judge or working for a law firm or working in government or working for public interest group or whatever. And I did not. I graduated unemployed. And at the time, I was deeply interested in politics. So I started looking for political jobs. And I ended up working on some campaigns, some political campaigns where I was getting paid like a ridiculously small amount. I had massive student loans, massive student loans. I was fortunate that my law school actually had a loan forgiveness policy for people who made very little money. So I was well beneath the threshold of that. And so that took a little bit of this thing out of it. And so that's what I did. I started working in politics, working on campaigns. Why politics? Why was that interesting to you at the time or what? I'm not sure why, but it was. It was really deeply interested in it. I was really deeply interested in it. Um, I was interested in it as on two different levels. One was that it was a way to make an impact to do something that affected the world. But equally, I have to say, it was also really exciting and interesting. And it was like a sport. It was like a game. It was like exciting. It's, it's a contest. It's, you're strategizing. You are trying to win. And so the sporting aspect of it, I liked a lot too. As you got into it, how was it different than what you anticipated? That's a great question. And I think that's one of the things that had me leave eventually. As I got into it, what I realized is that the, I looked at those two, think about those two parts. There's the sporting aspect, the game aspect to it. And then there's the impact aspect to it. And what I found is that it was mostly about the sporting (laughs) aspect. And that actually, for me at least, lost its thrill after a while. And you wonder, like, what's the point of this exercise? that the tactics, and it was all tactical, there's very little strategy. It's basically all, let's just do things for some short-term tactical advantage. 
after a while, that loses its appeal if you're not doing something in the service of something bigger. And found that the service of something bigger ended up getting crowded out, um, not because of the people I worked with, the, you know, the politicians I worked for necessarily, but because of the the system is just it's a system designed to prize short term tactical rather than long term strategic and designed to prize the quick small fleeting victory rather than the harder, more enduring victory. So I'm super curious about that. For those folks that haven't worked in politics or been around politics before, what's what's an example that you experienced of that? You know, I worked back in the days when people read newspapers. So Oh that's that's way yeah, back, Dan. Yeah, way yeah. Back. So, you know, somebody would write an article about something that somebody I was working for said or did, and in the seventh paragraph there was a sentence that was ambiguous about whether it was positive or negative, and we would have to have an hour-long conversation about whether it was positive or negative, and then another hour-long conversation about how to respond to it. When in fact, it's like, okay, this is really meaningless. It's really short-term. No one's going to care about this in three hours, let alone three days or three years. Why are we wasting our time on this? Or even things like, I mean, it used to drive me nuts. And unfortunately, in some of my jobs, I didn't have to do this. But for you know, I, I became a speechwriter. The principal, the politician, is going to go up before a group of people and some kind of speech. So who has to be acknowledged? All right. Well, should we acknowledge so-and-so? Meaning that, you know, hello, it's great to be here at the National Association of Rutabagers. I'd like to thank National Rutabaga Association President, you know, Gene Fernandez. Like, who do you have to thank and acknowledge from the podium? I mean, that just struck me as like the most absurd, like the amount of time spent on that kind of nonsense was just, uh, it was just absolutely absurd. Those are two small examples from that part of my life. And I'm guessing elements of that caused you to leave, but I'm super curious then, you know, as you became a speechwriter, what were some of the elements that you really, truly enjoyed out of that experience? Oh, uh, what I liked about it was that something actually happened, uh, ephemeral though it was. So you would write something and then you would see something that you came up with and it was quoted in a newspaper or seen on TV and people responded to it. That's super cool. A lot of times, like in the policymaking process, the policy was delayed and delayed and delayed and sort of not being finalized. And what ended up finalizing it was the fact that somebody had to give a speech announcing it. And so there was a tiny insight into policymaking and a tiny impact on, on policymaking. And also, it's just very, very fast-paced environment. It can be exciting at times. Turn on the TV and they're talking about stuff that you're involved in, which is cool. I'm super curious because in some ways, at least on the exterior, it seems like the fast pace of that is drastically different in some ways than life as a writer and author. Maybe not for book tours or anything else like that, but... (laughs) Oh, God, yeah. Totally. Totally. For speech writing at a certain level, once you get to the cabinet level and the presidential, vice presidential level... It's like being a doctor, but it's like being it's like working in an inner city emergency room. <laughs> you're always on call. <laughs> you're always on call and what you're trying to do is stitch yeah. up the body so they don't yeah. die on your watch. That's what it's like. It's that kind of atmosphere. It can be exhilarating. It can be exhausting, but it can also be exhilarating. What caused you to leave that then? Because you're having some of that exhilaration. Certainly there was elements that uh, that you didn't like, but what what actually took place that caused you to move down the road or to take those actions to to leave? It was several things. So number one was 
that I mean, not even, I don't want to, I don't even want to rank them because it's not like they're oh, yeah. linear. It's like they all, they all work together. So one thing was at the time I was in my early thirties toward the end, I was in my early thirties and I looked down the road 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. And the people who were doing what I was doing, like what were their lives like in 10 years, 20 years? And I didn't like that at all. <laughs> I didn't like what I saw potential of my becoming which is basically a person who's, you know, a career political professional, deeply, deeply cynical and entirely tactical. I didn't like that at all. That's one thing. The second thing is that it's a very demanding job. And again, this is such a long time ago. It was really pre-widespread use of mobile phones. So I used to have a pager. That pager was like being tethered to the job. And I think that the people who you're working for need that kind of commitment. They need the kind of commitment that you're always going to be ready to help. You're always going to be on call. I actually think that's the kind of people you should hire. And because my wife and I had had a baby, I was thinking, God, you know, I don't know if I want to be on call all the time. So that was a factor. Another factor was that, again, this has nothing to do with politics, but Another factor was what we're talking about before. The balance was so much on short-term tactical, tactical advantage and nothing on anything more enduring. You know, and then even more important, I sort of, you know, as you learn about yourself, I was very fortunate in that I had some good bosses, but I realized that I didn't really like having a boss, period. There was not very much autonomy in that kind of work. And then another factor was that, and this is where it sort of makes a little bit more sense in retrospect, like so many things. From a very early age, from the time I was in, in um, college, I was always, quote unquote, writing on the side. I was writing magazine articles, newspaper op-eds, that kind of thing. I did it in college. You know, in college, I was a pretty hardcore social science person, pretty dedicated, hardcore student. But on the side, I wrote, believe it or not, I won a short story prize in college completely antithetical to the hardcore mathematical social science that I was doing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Law schools, I was writing articles for newspapers and magazines on the side, probably spending more time on that than on my actual law school work. When I got into the workforce, I was also, I was writing book reviews for magazines. And even when I got into other kinds of jobs where I wasn't allowed to get paid, understandably because of ethics concerns. I was still writing for magazines and newspapers on the side. And that's when, ever so slowly, thanks to my wife in part, I began to realize that what I was doing, quote unquote, on the side is what I should be doing for real. I became a speechwriter in a pretty random half-assed way in that I just, somebody asked me to do it once and I did an okay job. And then they asked me again and I did an okay job. And then suddenly that was what I was doing. As happens, yes. Yeah, exactly. I think that's common in a lot of enterprises. It's not as if I set out to do that. and But I never sort of when I was growing up or when I was in college, or, oh, I'm going to grow up and become a writer. There, there are plenty of people who are like that. There are plenty of people who know from a very early age that they're going to be writers. And I think I discovered that a little bit later in life, not at an ancient age, but at a later age than most people, I think, you know, early 30s. I realized hmm, this is what I do. Like here I am killing myself at midnight working on an article that I'm not going to get paid for, hmm, this might actually be something that I like doing. So here's my question about that then, Dan, because I think it's always obvious in retrospect, but I love digging into people's stories because 
there's always seems to be some element that is there. It's never like I had this epiphany and I was going to be a beekeeper and, and yeah, all, exactly. you know, that was it. I'm a beekeeper now <laughs> and boom, everything was great. Yeah. There's always some element there. So at what point I heard you say that your wife was critical to that, but was there a particular point in time where you had that realization or the, or the switch flipped or what was it that really I'm with you, Scott. I don't have epiphanies. I mean, I just don't think life generally doesn't work that way. I think it's a slow hunch. It's a gradual realization. It is taking three steps back and looking at your pattern of behavior and say, holy smokes, this is what I do. I think that's what happened with me. It goes to something I've mentioned before in you know other... I think I, I've mentioned this in some other interviews or in some speeches or whatever, which is that this question about that people tend to ask younger people, like, what's your passion? What's your passion? And I really dislike that question because I think when you face that question, there's sort of this obligation to give a really profound answer. And I think it's a hard question to answer. And I I think it's the wrong question, though. I think the real question is, what do you do? You know, look at your own behavior. What do you do? So go back to your beekeeper example. I don't think people wake up one morning and say, oh, I'm going to be a beekeeper. I think what they do is they say, hmm, why do I spend so much time like following these bees around? And and, like when a bee is in my backyard, I take a picture of it. I look at it. Why am I reading this article about bees? Why do I look linger in the grocery store and look to see where the honey comes? If it's a switch, it's more like a dimmer switch. It's not like an off on. It's not binary one zero. It's more gradual. And I think that at a certain point, when that if you take a step back and watch what you do, I think that reveals clues. So even now, after spending a long time as a writer, if you were to say to me, you know, is writing your passion? I would say, I don't think so. Because writing is really freaking hard. <laughs> yes. Yes, it is. <laughs> There's some days that I hate it. Uh, but it's what I do. So let me ask you about that for just a second then. Two questions here, and maybe they'll take us two different, completely different places. But I'm curious when you say that, and I completely understand that, but I'm not sure that is always obvious what is beneath the layers of that. Like, my impression of everything that you've said so far is that overall you enjoy writing and being an author and the byproducts of that and what goes into that. And it's something that you've done for a very long time, even when you weren't getting paid. Break down some of those layers for me a little bit in terms of what do you mean when you say, hey, no, it's absolutely not my passion. It's really freaking hard. Help us understand a little bit more of that, because I do think that there is this misconception out there that when you find the thing or you are the beekeeper or whatever it might be, then you're just going to enjoy absolutely every element of it. And and I know you actually talk about this in, in one of your one of your books too, Drive, but break that down for me a little bit in terms of what you mean by that. It really depends on what we mean by enjoyment and what we mean by passion. I think passion is just the wrong word. Um, I really do. I think that is passion is a sort of emotion, a sort of state that is very, very hot and, and not enduring, not something that's sustainable. I think that what gives people satisfaction in their work is a sense of challenge. And remember, challenge can be frustrating because sometimes you're not up to the challenge. So I think it's a sense of challenge. And I also think that it's a sense of contribution as well. So if I get an email from reader or I see a reader at an event or something like that, and they say, like, I had an experience last week. I was in Nashville at a bookstore, and these two people came up to me, a man and a woman, you know, maybe in their 
late 50s, early 60s. And they said, we read a book of yours, a book called A Whole New Mind. And it really changed the way the conversation we had in our house with our son. We realized that the fact that he wasn't this hardcore left brain quantitative person was okay. And that he had these other skills. And then because of this book, he decided to go to the Rhode Island School of Design. And he went to the Rhode Island School of Design. And now he's in his late 20s and has this flourishing career as a designer. And they're saying, and it's all, you know, and I don't know if that would have happened without your book. Okay. So that basically kept me in the writing business for two additional weeks. So I think that's a better way to look at it. What is challenging? What do you do because it's part of who you are? And what do you do that makes a contribution? So now that you've been doing this for a while, we know that you don't enjoy every single element. So no way. Yeah, no way. And I don't think that's true for any, any, I think it's true for, you know what? Like I like baseball. Okay. And I bet it's super cool to be a professional baseball player, but you know what? There's a lot of being a professional, a major league baseball player. That's a total pain, right? You have 162 games every season. You finish a game at, 12 o'clock at night and go take a shower and then have to take a plane to the West Coast and play another game. Your body takes a beating. You have to concentrate every single night. You have to stand up there every single night as if you're a hitter and face somebody throwing a projectile at you 95 miles an hour. And some days, like you're just not in the mood to do that. But what do you do? You get up and do your job. And so if you look at like a major league a baseball player or, a major, or, or an NBA basketball player, no, is baseball your passion? Well, I don't know, but it's my job and it's what I do. It's my challenge. It's what I do. It's what I care about. So again, I don't want to split hairs here, but I think it's a very, I think professionals care about challenge and they care about contribution and they care less about passion. At some level, passion and contribution are focused in very different directions. Passion is all about me and contribution is all about other people. And so I just don't think that, I, I really don't think that, that professionals care about passion. Love that perspective. I don't think I've heard it put quite that way before. Listen, there are going to be plenty of people, um, believe me, there are going to be plenty of people who are going to be emailing you saying, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. I'm a professional. I'm passionate about bird watching or whatever. And you know, I'm a professional surfboarder and I'm passionate about surfing. But my guess is that professional surfers, there are many, many days when surfing, even though they like surfing, it's who they are, is a total pain. I don't think that that is dissimilar from a lot of what we teach on this podcast at all. However, I still find that as people listen to the show, I do continuously get those emails. So I appreciate very, very much you breaking it down in that that particular way. And I love especially the piece about contribution versus passion. That is super interesting to me. And I think that's probably true for many things in life. When you're focused on other people as opposed to just yourself. That's Those are the kinds of the things that carry you forward. And those are the kinds of things that make you feel connected to it. Those are the kinds of things that give you meaning. Those are the kinds of things that uh, ultimately get you where many people want to go in a lot of different ways too. So that absolutely resonates with me. Here's another question for you that I, I'm curious about. Let me, let me put it to you this way. I get emailed all the time about Johnny Bonko. Really? Okay. I, I do actually. And it, it makes sense considering the context of our, you know, what we do, our company and our podcast and everything else along with it. But I've heard you say in a couple of different places and read a couple of different interviews where you've said things like, Hey, this is 
<laughs> I think I came out before its time in some way, or I really didn't consider this book to be a very large success. But I find that the emails that I'm getting about it, the people that are like, hey, have you read this? They list it as you know their top 10 books many, many, many times. So one, I'm curious how you think about this book now. And I wanted to ask you about that. I'm very proud of that book because I think it's incredibly original. I think it's an original book. And I think it's a book that's been helpful to people. If you look at the raw numbers, it hasn't sold as many as my other books. I don't consider it a, a failure. I consider it a really inspired experiment that, I was, that I'm proud of and that I enjoyed doing, but that didn't put the same numbers on the board as another book, which suggests that maybe it's the format of that book is somehow has less of a wide appeal than other kinds of formats. It does seem the way that people put it to me in email format or talk about it to me in conversation, I would almost equate it to like cult following a little bit, hmm. almost like a, a movie that had... I a, like to hear that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's like, it's like Office Space or Arrested Development. Yes. And those are, I'm happy to be in that troika there. Office Space, Arrested Development, and The Adventures of Johnny Bunko. Perfect. Let's put it into that category. That is very much uh, seems where it, it probably should be. I like it quite a bit. I would like to spend a few minutes talking about when though, because I've read the whole book uh, about hey, thanks. one. Yeah, absolutely. I thought it was amazing. It was interesting to me. It had a different feel than some of your other books in a few different ways. Mm. And I'm curious, you know, as you were writing, how did you approach this book differently than some of your past? Well, this book is about the science of timing. And the idea behind it is that we tend to think that timing is an art we make our timing, our when decisions based on intuition and guesswork. But what we should be doing is making them based on evidence and science. And so the way I approached this was by doing a very deep dive into the science. And it turns out that across dozens and dozens of fields, from the social sciences like social psychology and anthropology and economics to the biological sciences, molecular biology, medical sciences, anesthesiology, chronobiology, endocrinology, that you have all these scholars in different fields are asking very, very similar questions, unbeknownst to each other. So they're asking, you know, what's the effect of time of day on what we do and how we do it? How do beginnings affect us? How do midpoints affect us? How do endings affect us? And what I found is that if you go wide enough and deep enough into this research, you can begin to piece together the evidence-based ways to make better, smarter, shrewder decisions about when to do things. So the way I approached this book was very much through the lens of science. And uh, or, or even more broadly, Scott, I guess on this book, I really began this book with a question. I didn't really have a theory of the case. So in other books, I've had an argument in mind that before I went out and went whole hog on the book, I basically I validated the argument and said, well, wait a second, I'm going to write a book that's going to make this argument. Whereas in this case, I, I came in with a question because I was just frustrated myself. It's like, basically, I wrote this book because I wanted to read it because I wanted to make better when decisions in my own life. So I went in with a question and the science led me to the answer. That's very interesting because as I read through it, it felt very much like back to back to back to back answers stacked up of questions that I had oh, good. Uh -huh. about this or questions that I didn't even know that I had, but was immediately curious about. So I really appreciated that in reading through it. And it felt very, yeah, I think stacked is the right word. It felt like every single chapter that I got to, I had 10 other things, maybe not literally 10, but a number of other things that I could use immediately. And that was fantastic. 
Well, thanks. I appreciate that. And, all, and also, you know, what the other thing I'm trying to do here is I'm trying to just broadly, I'm trying to do this in the other books as well, or uh, some of the other books is give people some insight into the science, but also try to use those insights to give them some tools to do something different in their own lives. And for me, one of the frustrating things about some books is that you read a book about big ideas or science or whatever, and, and it's interesting and it's worth reading. But then you say, okay, so what can I do with this? And the author doesn't stoop to tell you what to do because he or she will say, oh, no, well, I'm not going to sully myself by giving you advice. And on the other hand, you have a lot of these really, really, really empty calorie books that are all about advice and exhortation. And they're thin. And you, you say, okay, well, how do you actually know this? Like, what's this based on? And so for me, the ideal is can you give people some insights into the science into the human condition, but can those insights yield things to actually live your life a little differently? And so that's what I tried to do in a lot of my previous and in, in a lot of my recent books. I think that especially in when you very much succeeded in that, I've always appreciated how you translated the science into something that's usable. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things I, I want to have you share a bit with our listeners, because I found it so incredibly useful. And I've always been fascinated by this in some of the studies I've read in the past too. But I think it's in the very first chapter, if I remember correctly, where you're talking about when you're essentially most effective, for lack of a better phrase, but how to find your daily win. And one, can you give a little bit of context around that? And then two, you go into what you call the Time Hacker's Handbook at the end of each chapter. And can you share a little bit about what you prescribe to find your daily win? Oh, uh, sure. So what we know about the day is... And it's very obviously a very important unit of time. It's something that is natural, that is physical. We were on a planet that is turning. So unlike a second, which is something that human beings have made up, or a week, that some, which is something that human beings have made up, a day is actually a real thing. And each day has a rich body of science tells us that the day has a hidden pattern. In general, we move through the day in three stages, a peak, a trough, a recovery, a peak, a trough, a recovery. Most of us move through it in that order, peak in the morning, trough in the mid to late, early to mid afternoon, uh, recovery late afternoon and early evening. Now, people who are strong night owls, that's about 20% of the population. It's more complicated. They tend to move in the reverse order, recovery, trough, peak. But, but what we know from a whole range of studies is that that's pretty much the pattern, peak, trough, recovery. And then you go one layer into the science. And what you find is that our cognitive abilities don't stay the same throughout the day. They change throughout the day. That's a big deal. And with the best time to do something depends on what we're actually doing. So let me unpack that because that goes to the Time Hacker's Handbook, which is the section of the book that has all the tools, tips, and takeaways. So during our peak, which for most of us is the morning, that's when we should be doing our analytic work. And what do I mean by that? That is work that requires heads down, focus, and attention, writing a report, analyzing data, the work that requires that lockdown focus. During the peak, we're most vigilant. And that means that we can knock away distractions. So for me as a writer, and as someone who's not an owl, uh, I should be doing my writing in the morning, getting rid of the distractions, doing my writing in the morning. During the trough, which for most of us is the early to mid-afternoon, that's not good for very much. And actually, there's a lot of data showing it's a very dangerous, like the early to mid-afternoon, a lot of bad stuff happens. You have an increase in traffic accidents. You have a, a massive increase in errors and problems in medicine. You have uh, kids scoring far lower on standardized tests at that time of day than in the morning. 
but just a, really a massive drop off in performance in the early to mid afternoon. So instead of trying to do our analytic work, then we should be doing our administrative work. Then you know, answering our routine emails or you know that kind of that kind of thing. And then finally, the recovery is actually a pretty interesting period. I mean, the recovery again, which for most of us is the late afternoon and early evening. Our mood is higher than in the trough. However, we're less vigilant than during the peak. And that actually is an interesting and powerful mix. When we have an elevated mood and less vigilance, that makes us better at what social psychologists call insight tasks. Those are tasks that require more conceptual thinking, less mathematical thinking, a little bit more kind of wider scope kind of thinking. Think about something like brainstorming. And so what we find is that if you move your analytic work to the peak, your administrative work to the trough, your insight work to the recovery, you're going to do a little bit better. And in fact, there's research showing the time of day, just time of day alone, explains about 20% of the variance in how people perform on workplace tasks. So that's a, that's a pretty big deal. The science is pretty clear on this. That science gives us very clear guidelines. It doesn't say, hey, Scott, you should start working at 8.13 in the morning and work for 43 consecutive minutes. You know, it doesn't say that. Right, but it gives us these broader design principles, and we don't do anything with that. And so, in our own work, so you have people like me who do their best analytic work in the morning, and then spend the morning answering routine emails and watching ESPN highlights, and then get to the the trough and try to do their harder work, and it's really hard for them. Or you have organizations that schedule meetings and without any thought about what kind of meeting is this? Is this an insight meeting? Is this an analytic meeting? Who's going to be there? Morning people, afternoon people. And so the big, big problem here is that the science is very clear that when matters, it matters significantly. And yet in our decision making as individuals and inside of organizations, we're completely unintentional and neglectful about issues of when. That is amazing. And it's been helpful to me in particular too, as I've been experimenting with schedule and different tasks, different times. I've so appreciated that. And I wanted to thank you for taking the time, speaking of time. And uh, since we've been talking about contribution, your contribution in the, in the books that you have put out to the world. So even though you were trying to answer a question for yourself, I still found it very, very beneficial. I appreciate you saying that. And let me just add one more thing about that on, on like book writing here too, because I really appreciate you saying that. And it, the reason I jumped in is that, and I think it's a lesson for entrepreneurs. I think it's a lesson for managers. I think it's a lesson for writers. And I think something else you said at the very end of it, Scott, was also really important and ties into this. You mentioned this idea that you've been experimenting with schedules, your own schedule. All right. And that's real. That's like, in, in some ways, the meta takeaway of this book, which is that what we should be doing is we should be much better observers of our own behavior. William James, who was essentially the father of modern psychology, he has this line that's always haunted me in one of his books where he says, most of us go through life, and here's his phrase, only half awake, only half awake. And that's always haunted me. And I think that the solution to being more awake is to be just as you're doing, like observe our behavior better and try stuff, like experiment with stuff that in some ways we need to take a more scientific approach to our own lives. And so what we can do in terms of the day-to-day -day rhythms is, is like be, pay more attention. How am I feeling at this time of day? How good am I getting this kind of work at this time of day? And then as you're suggesting, 
Scott, do some experiments with that. Well, what if I move this over here and this over there? How do I feel now? And that is actually a way to be more fully awake because you're observing your behavior more and you're trying experiments. And I think what's tied to that, and forgive this rant here for a moment, is that the way that I think about the books that I write is very much the way you're suggesting, which is that if I'm wondering about this question of when, then other people must be too, because I'm not that special. And I think we have this tendency to think of ourselves as like so wildly different from everybody else. And there's a lot of research on this. So a lot of research that when we ask ourselves, it's like, oh, if you ask somebody, are you, in, are you extrinsically motivated or intrinsically motivated? And give me some examples of that. And we say, oh, I'm very intrinsically motivated. And here's examples of how I've navigated my life on that. Well, what about other people? Oh, no, no, no. They're totally extrinsically, <laughs> you know. Chip Heath did that, did that research. Other kinds of things, you know, if you found a wallet on the ground, would you, you know, try to return it to its rightful owner? Oh, of course. What other people? No way. Everybody else is so dishonest. And my view is that, you know, I pick topics that I'm curious about, uh, partly because I know it's going to be a better book, but also I just figure if I'm curious about it, that means other people are going to be curious about it. And so, and I think that that's true for uh, managers. So if you think about a manager saying, well, I don't like being treated this particular way. Maybe I shouldn't treat my people that way, all right? Or an entrepreneur saying, wow, I'm really frustrated by this particular industry or this particular service. I would sure like something better. Probably other people are thinking that same thing. And so I, I do think that it's important sometimes to extrapolate from our own experience. And while we like to tell ourselves and our children, oh, everyone is so unique and everyone is so special. And they are at some level. I don't want to diss that entirely. But I also think that it's important to recognize that all of us have a lot in common. So if you're experiencing a frustration, if you have a question, the odds are very, 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 very good that lots of other people are having that frustration or harboring that question. Thank you for the rant, first of all. <laughs> and second of all, thank you so much for, geez, as I was thinking about this a little bit as we were talking here, but you have, through your books and, and through your work, I've taken away so much over the last couple of years. So I so appreciate you taking the time and coming on and sharing that with our listeners too. That way they get a bit and a taste of what, what I've been able to benefit from over the, over the years. And that is super cool, super fun for, for me to be able to share, share your knowledge with everybody else. And when, by the way, I haven't seen any place that sells books of any kind that you can't get it from. And I was in a few bookstores when I was in Austin, Texas. Um, and, it was very prominently displayed, so you can't miss it almost. But I would say since you can't miss it, pick up a copy. I absolutely enjoyed it immensely. But the full title is When the Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing. Thank you so much, Dan. I really appreciate it. Scott, it's been a pleasure talking with you. If this is not your first episode of the Happened to Your Career podcast, you've probably heard somebody on here that their first step to work that they absolutely love that fits their strengths and they're excited about was going through our free eight-day mini course to figure out what fits you. And we've had now well over 30,000 people have that as their beginning step to identifying what they want in their lives. And you can do the exact same thing. 
And if you're interested in that, it asks some really amazing questions to get you started in becoming clear on what you want and what you need in your career. And it's a great way to kick it off and determine what is most important for you moving forward. You can learn what you're great at so you can stop wasting time in your job and start working in your career. Uh, Even identify some of the internal blockages that are keeping you from fulfilling work and wealth and career success and begin narrowing down what you should be doing for work that's fulfilling to you. All you have to do is go to figureitout.co, that's figureitout.co, and get started today. Enter your email and voila, we'll send you the very first lesson. Head on over there, figureitout.co. Or you can text HAPPEN to 44222. That's H-A-P-P-E-N to 44222. And I couldn't figure out what else I should be doing, so I stuck with it. And so I had, you know, a college degree, master's degree, a few years in the work world in engineering consulting, and the whole time never All that really felt like it was a good more fit for me. Next week, right here on Happen to Your Career, make sure that you don't miss it. And if you haven't already, click subscribe on your podcast player so that you can download this podcast in your sleep and you get it automatically, even the bonus episodes every single week, sometimes multiple times a week. Until next week, adios. I'm out.